Thank you, Kay. Keep your Bibles open there, and um, and we'll have a run through of this chapter, in particular verse six. And this was a pun that I could not refuse. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the chance that we've been able to come and sing your praises, been reminded of what you have done for us. And Lord, we just ask now that as we open up this passage that you would speak to us. Teach us the things that we do not know and and give us the things that we do not have. And Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified throughout this passage, through my words and throughout our lives as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you visiting this morning, my name is Pastor Dale and it is lovely to have you with us. Lumens or lux are two measurements of light. If you've ever bought some very expensive spotlights for your four-wheel drive, you'll know that lux is a measurement of light. One lux is the ability to read a newspaper at a certain distance away from the light. So the greater the distance from your spotlights to the newspaper, the better the spotlights, obviously. Um, as I've said, one lux is the ability to, to read that newspaper. The opposite measure, and I don't think it's a measure of darkness, but the opposite measure is called a bortle dark sky scale. You hear that? Bortle dark sky scale. And it's, a, it's an indication or a measurement of the darkness of the night sky as compared to the, the stars that are in that sky. Now, I'm not a scientist, thank goodness, but I'd like to claim that darkness is not something that you can, that you can measure. Darkness in and of itself is, is not a particular thing. In fact, I think darkness is simply the absence of light. Pure darkness, and if you've ever done a mind tour when you turn all your lights off, you put your hand in front of your face and you cannot see a thing, you cannot see your hand, that is pure darkness because of the absence of light. This world that we live in and, and the, the world that, that Isaiah writes to this morning is full of sin and immoral behaviour. It's a dark place. It's full of war, of hunger, of death, of greed and, and on account of man's evil deeds it just continually gets darker and darker and darker. People do horrible things to themselves, towards others, and even towards God, intentionally or, or unintentionally. And you don't have to have a degree in human behaviour to know that this world is in a bad situation. There's evil and darkness all around us. Just turn on the news at night time, you'll see that. Sin pervades every aspect of our lives. It causes darkness between us and God causes relationship breakdowns within ourselves. It causes relationship breakdowns towards others and obviously towards God. 
And it's not a new experience for us. We've been experiencing this ever since Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. And this world that the, the prophet Isaiah writes to this morning is in much the same situation. But light was about to break into the darkness. Isaiah prophesied that, that light was to shine on those who were walking around in darkness. Just so that we can understand this passage a little bit better, we'll have a, a little bit of background. Isaiah was a, a prophet to the kingdom of Judah. And I won't go into detail from King Solomon to Jesus. Don't worry, we won't be here that long. The whole, the nation of Israel divided. It's separated into ten tribes to the north, the northern kingdoms, who called themselves Israel, and then just the tribe of Benjamin and Judah to the south, which called themselves the kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah prophesied to this southern kingdom of Judah between the times of 800 to 700 BC, approximately. I wasn't there. I don't know the times exactly. And during, one of the, during this time, one of the kings that reigned in the southern kingdom was King Ahaz. And along with, with many of the other kings, Ahaz did some abhorrent things. He created false gods of carved images of metal and wood and stone. And he even burned his own son as a human sacrifice. Yes, I know. And the northern tribes of Israel departed from God as well. And they were experiencing the judgment of God in the form of their enemies, Assyria. And so it was that the sun began to set on this southern kingdom of Judah. And to put it as Romans 1 does, Ahaz and those who followed him suppressed the truth so that the wrath of God would be revealed against their ungodliness and unrighteousness. Chapter 8 of Isaiah's prophecy details how this happened. The shadows of growing despair and gloom descended on Judah. Ahaz and the majority of the people had departed from God, and so God handed them over to their sin. And it became increasingly apparent that the godless plans of, of Ahaz and his governments were failing. And the people were turning to all other sorts of, of superstition and occult to, to try and find some hope in the midst of moral darkness and anger and frustration and hopelessness. Does it seem familiar to our time at all? We seem to be heading in the same sort of direction as a country, don't we? Turning away from, from our Christian heritage, moving more and more towards a godless society. But now we get to Isaiah chapter 9. We see some glimmer of hope that through the darkness the Israelites would see a light, that the light would shine upon them that this promised Messiah was to come and to save them from their enemies. He was to shine a light into this dark and hopes, hopeless situation. 
not just for the kingdom of Judah, but for the kingdom of, of Israel, the northern kingdom as well. And he picks this up in verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, The people walked in darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah writes these words as if they are a certainty for him, as if they've already happened. And we live in a privileged position now, looking back on the, on the birth of Jesus, looking back on, on this prophecy, and, and we do know that they are a certainty for us that the light has dawned on Israel, that the light has shone on those who have dwelt in deep darkness and that Jesus is the very Messiah, the very light that, that Isaiah talks about here. And in Matthew 4, 13 to, 13 to 16, Matthew picks up these verses, verses 1 and 2, and he, he applies them to Jesus' ministry because Jesus started his ministry in the northern tribes of Israel. It confirms this prophecy. And we can know that Jesus is the light of the world because he said the very words, I am the light of the world in John eighteen twelve. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. What a privilege we have, hey? To live in such a time where we can pick up the Bible, read it from front to back or back to front and have it all confirm and affirm Jesus as God's promised Messiah. But what does Jesus being the light of the world actually mean? What does light dawning into darkness mean for us? If you've ever gotten up before the sunrise or stayed up all night, you'll know that the darkness or the night seems to be at its darkest point in the hours leading up to the sunrise. When those rays of light first break the surface of the horizon, it brings with it a hope of a new day, a new day dawning. And with the dawn bringing the hope of a new day, similar to Jesus coming into the world, brings it with it a hope of a new way that, that man will be able to worship and commune with God. By God in the flesh, Emmanuel coming and being the light of the world, drawing mankind to himself and showing that God is trustworthy, that he loves us and that he wants to experience wants us to experience him, it brings with it a new dawn of a new time. Another aspect of Jesus being the light of the world is that light reveals things that are in darkness. And so if you want to see in the darkness, you take a torch with you, you take a flame with you, light reveals the things that are in darkness. And Jesus actually came so that we might know who we are and also to reveal who God is. 
that God is a God of compassion, of mercy, of love, of justice, and of kindness, of light. Jesus also reveals that God is not a distant God who just lives in heaven and throws down commands upon his people. But he's a God who's willing to dwell with his people. And Jesus' claim to, to being the light of the world demands a response from us, and demands a response of following him. And there's three things I want to draw out of this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, in particular verse 6, that confirms the prophecy of Jesus. The first thing is, is Jesus' humanity. For to us a child is born. Isaiah says that Jesus will come in the same way that many other babies have been born before him and after him would come, as a child. But his birth would be a little bit different. He prophesies in, in chapter 17, verse 14, that he, his birth, uh, Jesus' birth would be from a virgin mother. And we know that that's true by, by reading through the Gospels. There's many other things that, that confirms Jesus' humanity throughout the Gospel. Passages such as Jesus becoming weary or tired. Um, throughout John 4, Jesus is sitting down and he's weary from travelling, so he sits down beside the well and speaks to the Samaritan woman. Mark 4 tells us that when, when the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee and they came upon this storm, Jesus was asleep in the stern. He got tired, just like we do. Luke 19 says that Jesus had compassion on the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it. He experienced sadness just as we do. Now this was partly because of their rejection of him but also that he was sad because of his great love for them. Many other times Jesus' compassion is mentioned and he sees people lost like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 4 tells us about Jesus' hunger after being in the wilderness and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I would have been hungry after about four days, I think. But I want to show you this passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one in every, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like for us to live this life that we live. He knows the tiredness, the turmoil, the temptation, and yet he was without sin. He knows the sadness that is caused by sin. And, and this means he's able to sympathise with us. This makes him the greatest saviour of all. None of us can say that, that Jesus doesn't know what it's like for me to live this life. 
We can't say that at all. Many times throughout history, a baby has grown to become a king. But only once did a king become a baby. The next thing we see in in verse 6 is Jesus' deity. To us, a son is given. And further down in verse 6, everlasting father and mighty God. Notice the construction of this first phrase, to us a son is given. This verse implies a pre-existence of Jesus. Unto us a son is given. That is, Jesus already existed as God the Son before he came to earth. And John, in his Gospel, verses 1 to 5, picks up this theme. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And again in John 3.16, the, the most famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As much as Jesus was human and he had humanity, he also had deity, divine. He was the second person of the Trinity and he was given to be the saviour for the world. Our Christian documents and creeds throughout church history have all sought to, to refute heresies that have been brought about surrounding the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. They've sought to establish the fact that he was absolutely human and absolutely divine. It's something that we need to remember that, that Jesus never became God. He always was God. Jesus is the only person that has ever lived on this earth to have existed before he was born. And he proved his divinity, his deity, through the many miracles that he did, miracles that haven't been done ever since and and may not be done ever, had not been done before and may not be done ever since. And the culmination of Jesus' ministry was his crucifixion and resurrection. Have you ever stopped to think about what it might have been like for Jesus to leave heaven. Jesus, the second person in the Godhead, surrounded by angels singing his praises, sitting on a throne surrounded with unapproachable light, and to come to earth. Earlier this year, my family and I and a few of us, we did a a trip to the Red Centre. And if you've ever been to the Red Centre or even north and northern Australia, you know that the dust of the Red Centre is different to all other dust in Brisbane. And first off, it's red. <laughs> Secondly, it gets into everywhere. There is no place that this dust cannot get into. For Jesus to come as a baby 
to live as a man, to breathe the dust of this earth in comparison to the gloriousness of heaven. Not only just to live and and experience this earth, but to die a painful death on a cross. Have you ever stopped to think about what that might have been like? Philippians 2, 5-8 Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, it's this combination of Jesus' humanity and deity that it makes us his, makes him our Redeemer and Lord. You see, he came to be mediator and redeemer and Jesus brings together all of God's holiness and all of God's, all of man's needs. Only God could be the one to save humanity, but only man should be the one to save humanity. And so the could of, of Jesus' divinity and the should of his humanity is, is brought together in the work of atonement at the cross. So from this verse, in chapter 9, verse 6, we see Jesus' humanity and his deity but we also see his sovereignty. Here is Jesus' right to the throne to, to be the head of the government. Right from birth, Jesus was the ruler and the sovereign Lord. The wise men who came to Bethlehem asked, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And these terms, wonderful counsellor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All these denote an ability or a trait of kingly rule, of sovereignty. Wonderful Counselor. You can get advice from anyone, can't you? But Jesus' counsel is different. Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Reiterating there is his attachment with the Godhead. Prince of peace. A prince and yet in submission to Father God as a prince is in submission to his king. And verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There haven't been any everlasting kingdoms throughout history aside from this one, have there? The Babylonians, the Romans, the Greek empires, they've all crumbled at one stage or another. What were they brought about by? 
They were brought about by war and conquering lands, weren't they? Jesus brings his his everlasting kingdom about by peace. Peace is something that we all long for, isn't it? I'm not just talking about world peace that your beauty pageants say when they're asked the, the question. I'm talking about real peace. Real peace. Peace within ourselves and, and peace with others. And even if we don't recognise it, peace with God. What a wonderful day that will be when there is true world peace. When Jesus returns and, and establishes his his kingdom on this earth and creates world peace. As Isaiah writes here, he's seeing way into the future, beyond Bethlehem and to the cross. That moment when Christ brought, brought peace between God and man by bearing our sins. And then further on to Jesus' resurrection when he, where he establishes his his power over death creates his government forever because he still reigns and lives even now. Jesus' claim at being the light of the world is backed up by his humanity, his deity and his sovereignty. And the one who created us, who lived on this earth with us, who knows exactly what life is like for us. The one who died for us and rose again to bring us new life, to shine light into darkness, is the only one who is fit to rule this world he created and the only one fit to rule over our lives. He is the one who has shone light into our lives. He has revealed who we are and, and who God is. He has taken us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvellous light. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 You see, God is the creator of, of physical light as well as the giver of spiritual light. Spiritual light by which we can see truth. Light that exposes that which is in darkness. It shows things as they really are. And to walk into the light, walk in the light means to know God, to understand truth and to live in righteousness. Brought about by Jesus' death and resurrection. We're going to come around the communion table very shortly where we're reminded of of not just what Christmas is about, about the birth of Jesus, but also about the death of Jesus. I want you to ponder one of these, uh, just this very thing. The gift that is given on Christmas it may not mean much to you. It may mean a whole lot to you. But as we're reminded as we come around this communion table, it cost God everything. It 
cost God his son to give us life and light. Please, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words in Isaiah that show us much more than we have time to cover this morning. That they show Jesus' wonderful humanity, his deity and his sovereignty. That he is as much a part of, of the Heavenly Father as he is a human being. Lord, as we come around this communion table now, as as we are reminded again of, of Christmas time, of the gift of this child, this son, that is given for us. Lord, may we not, ref- not forget that the fact is he came for a purpose. He came to live and to die and to be raised to life with you and, and to show to those who are in darkness the wonderful light of your kingdom. Lord, as we come around this communion table, I pray that we would reflect on the cost that was involved in bringing us into this kingdom of light. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. We thank you for this gift of this child. In Jesus' name, amen.